Tonight, a Christian warrior. I know that name sounds a little bit stark and sounds a little uh, tough, maybe, so to speak. In fact, how is it possible to be a Christian warrior at the same time as one tries to be a peacemaker? The Bible does picture us as being warriors for God, as our being soldiers of Christ. In fact, we frequently sing the song that is found in your songbook on page number 585, Soldiers of Christ Arise and Put Your Armor On. The truth is we understand it by looking at the life of Jesus. At their times, Jesus was a peacemaker. He is the one who made peace between man and God. He is the one who made peace between Jew and Gentile. In fact, even in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, in verse 14 and in verse 17, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who are near. That means that Jesus was a herald of peace. And yet in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. How does a person reconcile the fact that Jesus is the great peacemaker, or as the Bible describes him, the prince of peace, and yet at the same time, he did not come to bring peace to everyone. I think you always have to look at the context. The context is very clear in Scripture. When it comes to the salvation of every man's soul, Jesus was a peacemaker. Romans 5 and verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19 and verse 10. And yet at the same time, Jesus came and brought an adversarial relationship with the devil and all those who follow him. And so in the same way, Christians are to be peacemakers while we are at the same time engaged in war. In James 3 verse 18, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Hebrews 12 verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And yet we read that Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18, he said, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies made previously concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So, like Timothy, you and I are to be good soldiers of the cross. We're to be people who serve God as Christian warriors. You see, part of it is understanding who our real enemy really is. Our enemy is not the man on the street. Our enemy is not the man who's not yet become a Christian. When you and I go into someone's home or when we talk with them at work, or at school, and we try to persuade them of the gospel, they're not our enemy. We love their soul, and we want them to be saved. It is also partly understanding the nature of the battle. We have to realize that we're not out trying to take men's lives. Jesus had to illustrate that to 
James and John, when they came to the Samaritan village and they cried out to Jesus, do you want us to bring down fire out of heaven and burn these people up like Elijah did? And Jesus' response was, you do not know what spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to take men's life but save them. The true nature of our conflict is that one which is mental and the battle for the mind. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is, they're not fleshly, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every one of us are out here trying to gather men's minds and to try to be able to to persuade them to follow the Lord. That is the nature of the battle. In trying to prepare for this lesson, I wanted to read through a number of Old Testament passages which talked about mighty men of valor. Would you and would I try to be a mighty man of valor for the Lord? One of the best descriptions that I found was found in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 8. There were some men of the tribe of Gad who wanted to help serve with David. And the chronicler recorded some Gadites joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness. Mighty men of valor, men trained for battle who could handle shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and were swift as gazelles on the mountains. You see, these are people who know the battle. They're battle-worn, they're battle-hardened, and they know how to fight the battle. Some of us need to realize it's our time, it's our place, it's our obligation to stand up and be soldiers of Christ and to be mighty men of valor. Well, this lesson is planned for two weeks. What we're going to look at is three things in the two weeks. The first part is going to be to look at preparation for this battle. Preparation of our cells, preparation of our armament. And then we want to talk about the penalty. And I know that's a word that some of you are saying, I think I know what that word means, but I'm not really sure. It's found in that song, number 585, and we'll look at that in a moment. But it means the whole armor of God. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday evening we're going to look at the rest of the Christian armor. We're going to take the first three tonight and then the second three next Sunday evening. And then we'll talk about how we want to prevail as Paul will in the latter part of Ephesians 6, verses 14 through 20. Let's begin with the preparation. If you want to look at the context, look at verse 10. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Put on the whole armor of God. You see, if a person doesn't put on armor or fails to put it all on, the reason why is perhaps they think they are more capable than they really are. Someone thinks that by my own strength, my own ingenuity, my own capability, I can be able to withstand the devil and there's nothing he can do to me. On the flip side of that coin, perhaps the reason a person would not put on the armor is because they've underestimated the enemy, the devil. 
I can be able to fight the devil and be able to prevail without having to put all this armor on. And that's just sheer foolishness. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, Peter writes, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So many times people think that they are more capable than they really are and they find out too late. But look with me now at verse 12 in this context. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. When he says our battle is not against flesh and blood, we recognize we're not fighting a physical human battle. No, we're not going to go out and we're not going to take swords nor guns nor bombs and be able to persuade men to become children of God. Those people who presently are in the Middle East who are fighting and their whole purpose in mind is to take this group of people and make them Muslims, not just Muslims, radical Muslims. Their purpose of doing that is to, is to try to change people, but they don't want to change by changing their minds. They want to change by means of carnal conflict. Let me give you a good illustration sometimes about being prepared for the right kind of battle. There's an instance found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I know you're familiar with it. There's the mighty Philistine warrior by the name of Goliath. And on the other side of the valley of Elah is the army of Saul. None of Saul's warriors, none of his mighty men of valor will go out to face Goliath. But David is going out. And you read in verses 42 and 43, And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. When he says, Am I a dog? He was looking at himself as compared to David. You know, in a battle for against an animal like a dog, a stick will do. You can whack that dog over the head and he'll go running. But you're not going to do that to a mighty man of valor who's almost nine feet tall, who's wearing a, a tremendous coat of armor that none of us could even carry. He says, am I a dog that you'd send this little old boy out here to fight this battle? He's nothing more than like sticks for a dog. You see, sometimes we want to go and we want to fight the battle of Christianity without the proper preparation and understanding the kind of battle that we're facing. It's a much greater battle than you and I sometimes are willing to give it. And that's the reason why he talks about these principalities and powers against the spiritual wickedness in heavenly places, you and I have to realize we're fighting a real battle and we better recognize our enemy. You have to prepare for battle. Now with the remainder of time, I want to take the first three of these Christian armaments. 
And I want to begin, first of all, with the word that I chose, the word panoply. It's a Greek word that is from the original panoplia, which means whole armor. If you look at the song in your song book, number 585, if you'll notice the third verse says, Stand then in his great might with all his strength endued, but take to arm you for the fight, but take to arm you for the fight, the penalty of God. Now you know what it means, the whole armor of God. Now when Paul takes this list of six items, He's going to go through them one by one and I can't tell you how many times I read over these before I stopped to try to take a look at each one of them. And they have some very powerful points within them. So let's take the first three and see if we can learn something from them. The first one is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Now most of us men today wear belts. You know why we wear belts? To hold up our pants. That's the the main. Some of you may wear them for decoration, but they have a function. But do you know that in biblical times, the belt was a little bit different? The belt was a metaphor of being prepared because men did not wear slacks like we wear today. They wore a long flowing robe. And if you wanted to be able to run or do some work, you had to reach between your legs, pull the bottom of your garment up, and stick it inside your belt. Or as the Bible translates the King James, girdle. The idea of something that goes around your waist. In talking about the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, he said, and thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist and sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Do you know why God wanted them to have their clothes on and be ready? It's because right after the Passover, they're going to take off and head to the promised land. God said, I want you to be prepared. And so it becomes a metaphor. When you gird up the loins, you're, you're getting ready to do something. Luke 12, 35, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, saying, be ready, be ready. This, when we start thinking about a soldier's adornment, his armor, this is the first item that he puts on. He puts on his belt because it has some features to it. Most of the Roman belts had clips on them. The purpose of those clips was to clip the breastplate to it. It also had a place for the scabbard to be attached to the side so he could put his sword in it. So the belt had a very important function of fastening down the rest of the armor and also a place to store his weapon. They were usually made of leather. And so it held it there. It encircled The soldier on every side, it was on the back as well as the front, just like a belt encircles us. But he says, having your waist girded with truth. With truth. What do you mean when you say truth? Well, truth is God's will. 
Do you remember John 17, verse 17? Jesus said, Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. God's word is truth. If you go to Romans chapter 2, verse 8, But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. You say, well, the truth there refers to the gospel message. In Ephesians 1 and verse 13, In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation. The word of truth is, is the message from God. So it could be that what he's trying to say, you've girded yourself all the way around. Everything is attached to the message of God. Or another possibility, the way the word truth is used to refer to honesty and sincerity. Truth means that I tell the truth. I'm not lying. I'm honest about my uh, way, not only the way I communicate, but even my feelings. In Romans 9 and verse 1, Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience is also bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm speaking to you exactly the case. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 8 Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, we're, we're, we're genuine in it. In Ephesians 4, verse 25, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. It's my opinion that in the context here of Ephesians 6, when he talks about having your waist girded with truth, since the sword of the Spirit is going to be the Word of God, it would appear to me that what he's talking about here is sincerity and truth and honesty and integrity. Let that surround you all around. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and the left, Truth is what God's people take with them. Now let me tie this to an Old Testament passage. When you're reading the writings of the New Testament, quite often you will see them make reference to an Old Testament passage and bring it over so we can appreciate it. And second, or Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 5 says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist, faithfulness. God does always what he says he will do. So it is a characteristic of God that he is encircled with righteousness. The second item is the breastplate of righteousness. Whenever I think about the breastplate, the first thing that comes to my mind is the attire of the high priest. I don't know if you'll remember the directions that God gave Moses, but Aaron was supposed to have a breastplate, and on it was 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. It was to be a beautiful adorned breastplate, and, but that's not the one we're talking about here. We're talking about a breastplate of armament, like the Roman soldier would wear. And it usually was either a solid piece of metal or sometimes little leafed pieces of metal that covered the chest and the back so that the vital organs would be protected. The heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys. 
All those major organs would be protected. Again, going back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 59 and verse 17, and he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for his clothing and he was clad with a zeal as a cloak. There's a picture there of God and his servant and the attire that he is wearing and here wearing the breastplate of righteousness. Okay, we've got the idea of the breastplate, what it is. But now a breastplate of righteousness. First of all, it's not our righteousness. It's not as if you and I are so good that we are the defense of our vital organs. In Romans 3 verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. In Philippians 3 verse 9, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in the Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Notice it's not mine, it's from God. God provides it to man. In Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by, according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, not by our own righteousness. And then the real kicker passage to me is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is, just like Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God, you and I, as we believe and trust in God, we have God counting us righteous by what Jesus did. That means it's acquired by following God's plan. Quite often I'm asked by people, do you believe that these people over here are sincere in these religious groups? Well, obviously I do. I believe they're sincere, but I believe they're sincerely wrong. Paul in Romans 10 verses 1 through 3 said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, but I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. God had a plan and they just didn't know about it and so they created their own. So much of the world doesn't know what God wants and so they create what they want to give. 1 John 3, 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. You follow Jesus, and then God will account it to you for righteousness. Number three, gospel shoes. Having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Roman soldiers wore sandals, but these sandals had hobnails in them. 
I didn't know what a hobnail was until I looked it up. A hobnail is a little short nail that protruded from the bottom of sandals. The best thing that you can compare to it today is some of your young people play baseball or sometimes even softball. They have shoes with cleats on them. Maybe they play football and they have shoes with cleats on them. Or maybe even a few of you might even play that little game in the pasture called pool, not pasture pool, it's golf. And you wear shoes that have spikes on them. You see, that's the exact kind of shoes that they had. And it wasn't just for protection of the foot, that was part of it, but it was also stability that if someone is charging you, you can stand your ground. It also gave them the ability to climb the side of mountains, to be able to to hold on. You see, feet were for transportation. You move, you march, you go. Having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. These are gospel shoes. The feet that bring the gospel message are blessed. Going back again to Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who proclaims peace. Who brings glad tidings of good things. Who proclaims salvation reigns. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. Paul brings that over in Romans 10, verse 15. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. You see, it's not just as if we have a preacher up here and he is the man. No, it's we're all members of the kingdom of God and we are all soldiers in his army. And we all adorn the armor that has been prescribed here. Those who bring the gospel are proclaimers of peace. And you have to prepare to bring that message. If you're going to bring the message to somebody and say, God offers you peace, you've got to know what that message is. So for just a moment, let me take 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Paul says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then we as our ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, Be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is a message to say that God loves you. God wants peace with you. And here I am just like an ambassador going to another country to say here are God's terms of peace. Here's how he wants to work things out with you. Having feed shod with a preparation of the gospel of peace. Of course, Lord willing, next week we're going to talk about the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But I want to tie this all together for tonight. There really is a battle for your soul. And the battle is raging on, whether you realize it or not. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lust which war against the soul. 
When you turn on the television tonight and the devil is tempting you to do something through the words of that commercial, there's a battle going on for your soul. The devil has some very devious techniques. In fact, he talks about the wiles of the devil, his trickery, his cunning, his craftiness. Only you can decide if you want to be on the winning side. One of the wonderful things that we have in Scripture is we know who wins. I watched a little bit of the Predators game the other night. I was sort of hoping that they would win. I was sort of thinking, you know, here's an opportunity for a southern team to be able to come away with a win. Wouldn't that look great? But, you know, I didn't know who was going to win until about halfway through that second period where I, it was pretty obvious to me then. You know something I know? When this world ends, when Jesus comes again, I know who's going to win the battle. Jesus is going to win. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords, King of kings, and those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. You want to be on the right side? You want to be on the winning side? You make sure that you stand with the Lord. We're going to sing the song, Hark the Gentle Voice. If you are subject to the Lord's invitation to become a Christian or to return as a child of God who needs to be restored, you can come tonight, you can be baptized for the remission of your sins, or you can come and you can ask for prayers to be restored to faithfulness. Either way and that you have need, would you come as together we stand and sing?